3: Was but
0: that a whoopee Are you falling asleep? <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> Hello? Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, he hey, tells- Wait,
0: hang on, wait, wait, wait,
3: Oh. Nice. It sounds like
0: you hit it off the bottle with a golf club. <laughs> that sounded that
4: was that was uh, quite a crisp open. Which yeah. would be quite a feat if you could do that. Glad you're awake. Okay, quick. hey, quick story on a golf course once I had bottles of beer that I thought were twisties and they weren't. And we didn't have a bottle opener. So I actually tried to use the back of my nine iron and I broke the neck off a (laughs) bottle and sliced my hand. That is a,
0: not a common practice. He's a golf club to open a beer.
4: And I don't (laughs) recommend it since since (laughs) quite
0: literally blood was spurting, like shooting out of my hand. Oh my God.
4: Cartoonishly. I was like, I don't think, um, I don't think I'm going to be able to finish.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Can I get a refund on, on at least uh, three of these holes? Yeah, this
4: is a – but, uh, yeah, so I actually do not recommend the whole golf club thing. Tried it. doesn't work.
3: Sure. I'm, I'm just glad that you're awake this week. Would you like to explain to our <laughs> listeners what happened to you? <laughs> yes.
4: Yeah, so you, everyone who listened to Michael Jackson Part 2 might have noticed that by my uh, timing, uh, for the final eight and a half minutes – I was absent. Actually, I wasn't absent. I was here. I just wasn't conscious. I fell asleep.
3: I get a text like two hours later. I was like, so you fell asleep. And like two hours later, I just get a might have. have.
4: (laughs) Well, either that happened or you died, or you were you were kidnapped or something happened. First of all, having listened to the show now, I sound like I hammered down a 55 gallon drum of Quaaludes right before we started. totally out of it and then i fell asleep in the in the, the i think of like the last seven or eight minutes i had been awake when we were we record rather late and they're on the west coast i'm on the east coast so there's a time difference we were well past one o'clock in the morning when we were getting to the end of that episode i had been awake for 20 hours and had and had had a 13-hour work day which i concluded with a four-hour city council meeting
3: Oh, my God. Yeah. I
4: was brain dead
3: from the jaw. Well, uh, I, I, what's the best part was, I think at the beginning of that episode, I even said like something about you falling asleep in the lap, like Michael Jackson, part one. You're like, nope, but I'm going to stay awake this whole episode. And I was, yep. No, you didn't.
4: <laughs> how'd, how'd that work out? By the way, since you uh, did not ask, the uh, beverage of choice tonight is one I've never had. It is called Rind Over Matter.
3: Oh, huh. clever name. pun.
4: It's a wheat ale with lemon and orange zest, and it's either going to be great or completely suck ass, and I'm not sure.
3: (laughs) You will have to tell uh, our other co-host, which is Will the Thrill. Greetings and salutations. Ah, that was a hearty sound. I,
4: I it was. And uh, and uh, that sounded like you. That sounded like you pulled a stuck
0: drain out of a bathtub. (laughs) Almost as satisfying, too. Now, what are you uh-huh. drinking? Uh, this is the Golden Road Wolf Pup Session IPA.
3: Did I get that for you? Yes, you did. It's a oh, local beer. Look at me. Absolutely. Look at me doing Ooh. it. Ooh, this round over matter is tasty. And as you guys know, I am drinking tea. And it's not just any tea, um, it's actually Tiesta Tea, who is our generous sponsor for this episode. Uh, just so you guys know, I placed an order with Tiesta Tea uh, using our promo code ROCKHEAVEN15. And I saved a bunch of money and I ordered the two relaxed teas that they've got, which is the Nutty Almond mm-hmm. and the Chamomile Lavender. And so we've had both of those, but the Nutty Almond is surprisingly amazing. Like,
0: And I, I will tell you, as someone who struggles to get to sleep, because LD knows my hours are kind of weird and I get up early and i don't fall asleep very easily this stuff helps yeah um, okay. i know
4: i have that problem too will <laughs> and you solved it by staying up I, strug- I struggle to fall
3: asleep <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. um yeah so if you guys want some incredible loose tea you guys have to live loose TST to is absolutely amazing teas and i'm not just being like a sellout here i legitimately love this tea and they've got amazing deals online right now you can uh get cyber week specials you can get variety packs you can get gift packs you can get teaware uh I actually ordered the brewmaster which is this amazing filtration system i cannot wait to get it it's coming in the next couple of days so i'll let you guys know about that but yes look
4: yes no, yes look we would not shill for something that we didn't like and LD and I, both being Southerners, there there are two things. There are two things that we will not do. We will not acknowledge Coy and Vance as Duke boys, and we will not lie about T. That's accurate. That is the truth. That's accurate. <clears throat> Coy and Vance, my
3: ass. <laughs> yeah, they're like the shimps of. Yes, they're shimps. They're shimps. Sorry, kids. That's a kind that's, way. That's, that's, and it basically—that's—that—that's that,
4: that's the point when it basically turned into like Mayberry RFD. It's like get the hell out of here.
3: <laughs> oh Go man! On. So you guys, again, try TS to T. They're incredible. You can get fifteen percent off at checkout on your order if you use our code Rock Heaven fifteen. That's going to be in the show notes down at the bottom. If you guys uh, are interested in that, try them out. They are incredible. Uh, tea. I'm actually sending some tea to T, mm-hmm. so he can actually enjoy some nice hot tea. As so well. it'll be. So it'll be tea, tea. <laughs> My, my oh, brother's a child. Boy. So we need to acknowledge a couple losses that we had in the music community. Uh, we in had I'd terri- t-
4: t- t- say a couple of really terrible ones.
3: Yeah, we had a songwriter David Firstberg uh, pass Firstberg. away. First Firstberg. Hirschberg. Frischberg. This, Frischberg. Yeah, uh, <laughs> It's hard to say. It is. But he was a jazz pianist and a singer who died on November 17th, who wrote these incredible songs. They're, they're moving ballads, they're beautiful. But he also did material for something that I think all kids above the ages of like 30 mm-hmm. are probably familiar with, which was Schoolhouse Rock.
4: Mm-hmm. Yes.
3: So he, he did songs like contemporary songs, like uh, I'm Hip, My Attorney Bernie, and Quality Time, (laughs) but he also wrote Sweet Kentucky Ham and You Are There, and the thing is, one of his most famous songs is something I'm pretty sure all of us know, which was the I'm Just a Bill. I'm
0: just a Bill. Bill. I'm only a Uh Bill.
3: Yeah, and- um, Oh, Capitol Hill. <laughs> so uh, he was 88,
4: and now that's so. That was like he was a part of everybody's childhood. Everybody's Saturday. See, kids, if you're if and I'm sure there are lots of kids that listen to our show. <laughs> there used to be these things called Saturday morning cartoons. You see, and in between Bugs Bunny and Sylvester, they would run these little educational, kind of commercial things. But it was, it was animated and it was stuff like that. It was the Schoolhouse Rock, which basically explained um, how bills were created and moved through Congress and passed and ultimately maybe signed into law. So you actually kind of learned something.
3: Yeah, like they had like three as a magic number, elementary, my dear. One of my favorites was conjunction, junction oh, and yeah, electricity. Yeah. Uh, electricity was like the bomb. I loved electricity. Um, But they also, in like '94 or '90, somewhere in the '90s, they released Schoolhouse Rocks, Rocks, which took contemporary singers and had them sing the songs from Schoolhouse Rock. So, like, three is a magic number was actually done by Blind Melon, and oh, wow. and Deluxe Folk Implosion did I'm Just a Bill, <laughs> and the Lemonheads did My Hero Zero, and so like you had these moby did some stuff skilo did one like it was it was really cool and so that the, was how a new generation got introduced to Las
4: Rock. i had totally forgotten about that dude you just said that um <laughs> the only thing about the only inaccuracy and i'm just a bill is that they left out the hookers and cocaines and the hookers and cocaine
3: sex workers
4: and the shady lobbyists they left all that stuff out yep they did. They left out the giant mounds of blow and the BJs and uh, people getting uh, yeah, paid for their votes. That part uh, somehow didn't make the cut. Yeah.
3: The next one I'm going to announce is the one that hit me the hardest, which is at the age of 91, we lost a giant in the musical world, which was Stephen Sondheim. Stephen Sondheim was instrumental in converting me into a hopeless theater mm-hmm. kid because of shows like Sunday in the Park with George, but he also did Sweeney Todd. And then he did the one that actually has my soul, which was Into the Woods. Mm -hmm. So because of that great loss, I am actually calling an audible. Oh. I apologize, Marilyn Monroe. I have to be put on the back burner because I'm going to be doing Stephen Sondheim.
4: Oh, wow. So this is the second time that we've had an Audible exercise because the the way we did this is last year we had a draft. We all picked four artists, and that's who we were going to do our series on this year. But we threw in the caveat, hey, you know, if someone noteworthy passes, then all of us can exercise if we wish to one Audible and change one of the people that we picked. I did that to start the year because right after we recorded our draft eddie van halen passed away yeah um, you know one of my favorite musicians of all time one of my favorite bands of all time so i dropped one of my selections and i picked up eddie and so now you are exercising your audible yep.
3: it's, yeah it's he i mean i think that i've actually mentioned on the show multiple times about west side story and he was instrumental in that and there's actually going to be a new version of that coming out december 10th and so, uh, and also uh, we just watched Tick, Tick, Boom, which was about Jonathan Larson and Stephen Sondheim played an intricate role in making Jonathan Larson uh, as passionate as he was about musical theater. And he gave him that that boost that he needed to finish his work. Well, they also cast Bradley Whitford, who- was stunning. Give that man a supporting a look, artist. Looked more like- Stephen Sondheim,
0: then, then Stephen Sondheim. Sondheim. It was crazy.
3: It was not. Yeah. And he had his mannerisms down. And uh, and so, yeah, I will be now taking up the mantle of doing a series on Stephen because what a glorious life that man led. And, yeah. and I, I do apologize. I will pick up Marilyn at some point. Like you are going to pick up Elvis at some point mm-hmm. or someone will pick up Elvis at some point. But yeah. Um, this is a big loss for me, and I, I was, I, I, I legitimately screamed when I heard that he had passed, and I'm sure. And, he, and he the knew. thing
4: is, as interesting as the Maryland series would have been, she did sing, and you did actually find, I think, a record that, that yeah. had some of her songs on it, yeah. but she is not remembered by most people as a musician. Now, it would have been interesting, I'm sure, to have heard that part of her. Yes. But this is very timely. This is somebody that meant a lot to you. So I, th- I think we, we all understand.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And I promise it will not be what, like we're doing now, which is be a 37-part <laughs> introspective on the life of Michael Jackson. Yes, I oh, think one, one
4: last thing. One last thing before we move on, if, if I may. Okay. As we're recording this on Tuesday, November 30th, yesterday was the 20th anniversary of the death of George Harrison. Wow. wow. And huh. um, now we have mentioned him a couple of times. He came up in the Tom Petty series a bit, of course, because they were in the the traveling Wilburys together. I believe he is one of the draft eligibles for next year, isn't he?
0: Yes, he is. And several listeners have actually brought that up because they know George is my favorite Beetle, and they can say, "Hey, when are you gonna do George? When, when are you gonna, gonna do George?" George. So could yeah. be next year. We'll we see. don't know.
3: we yeah. nudge nudge. Uh-huh.
0: We'll uh, we'll have uh, but we'll have our
4: draft coming up, and if you haven't gone to our uh, socials and seen the list of draft eligible artists please go check it out and and you've got like a last chance to maybe make a pitch here if you yep. want us to pick to uh one of us to select somebody
3: yep that is on our facebook page just it's not pinned or anything so you'll have to because none of us are that tech savvy mm-hmm. so good luck with that um so uh before people figure out that uh We've taken a half hour on (laughs) literally (laughs) nothing else but just chatting back and forth. Um, let's jump into Michael Jackson part three. All
0: right, all right. And the first two parts, I believe, covered when he was born and the next hour,
3: correct? Yes, okay, actually, an hour and a half after his birth. So,
0: yeah, he hasn't been like
4: circumcised yet, or
3: nope, (laughs) hasn't even and they hadn't even been put into diapers. He's still in that little uh, towel they give you. They're still babies. drawing up
0: all the paperwork at the hospital. Yep.
3: Yeah. So actually when we last left Michael and the other Jacksons, they had just released one of the biggest songs of the 1960s which was I Want You Back. And they were really riding high off that success, but it would actually be a couple more months until the next thing would come out and we will get to that in just a couple minutes. Now with all this going on, October 1st, 1969, he and his father and brothers were being shuffled from one hotel to the other. And I'm assuming that was pretty seedy hotels, which by the way, me and Will looked up what we thought was that hotel that we mentioned last week. And if it's the same one, who oh boy. So that here in LA? Or, yes.
0: Oh yeah, that was Any
3: place that still uh, advertises that they've got cable TV and HBO is, Yeah just n- no because here's the thing <laughs> everybody
0: has hbo now oh, my phone yeah the yeah, yeah. <laughs> if it yes when if I if
4: one of the the one of their big uh selling points is phone in room
0: color television yeah. <laughs> color television
3: <laughs> yeah well his pa- his his father and his brothers were the ones that were staying in that room note that i said his father and his brothers not michael where was michael you might ask Where was Michael? Oh, glad you asked. I'm here for you. He was with Diana Ross in her Hollywood Hills home. As you do. Yep. It was a very calculated thing, and I wanted him to be around her, Barry Gordy explained. I wanted Diana to teach him whatever she could. Diana is a very influential person, and I knew Michael would pick up some things by just being around her. Diana said that he sort of reminded her of her when she was that age. Michael was anxious and interested as well as talented like Diana. And that's uh, when I had first met her when she was 16. So Barry had met Diana when she was 16 and she wasn't terribly old. I think she was maybe 23, 24 at this time. It was her early twenties. Yeah. yeah we, we figured it out. She was pretty darn young. In the time that Michael was staying with Diana, She sort of took on the role of a surrogate mother and she became very attached to him. And even though Diana would be at home for the month of October, she was extremely busy. She was about to leave the Supremes and embark on a solo career and she and Barry were having a tumultuous relationship. The thing about that romance was that they would have these huge blowout arguments in private with Michael there. And then they would be in front of the paparazzi cuddling with each other. And so Michael learned a lot about the show business public relations aspect of your public versus private face from his time with Diana and Barry. Of course,
4: it's also one more toxic environment that he's being thrust into.
1: Right.
3: Well... Actually, not really, and I'll get to that, but but it wasn't as toxic as you think it was. Now, with Michael turning 11, he did have some lonely moments living in the Ross home when she was away with work. He did miss his mom, and he would talk to her on the phone constantly, which would run her phone bill up, but I mean, it's Diana Ross. I'm sure she had the cash to burn. (laughs) Right. Right. There were no unlimited minutes back in 1969, and his mom was really troubled about michael's life during that time according to one family friend who asked for anonymity because it's someone who catherine still confides in to this day she said that catherine was truly concerned about diana ross's lifestyle and how it might influence her son she didn't want her son to be corrupted by diana or the show business or her circle of friends because you guys have to remember catherine was a devout jehovah's witness and so that life of excess goes against what the church teaches because you're only supposed to give your money to the church. Like, you know, have a home, had a food, you know, clothe yourself. But when it comes down to it, like your money should be going to the church. So, um, uh, knowing very little of the real Diana, she only saw someone who she thought was egotistical and self-absorbed. And so she was actually really afraid of what Diana was teaching her son. And, Add to the distress about what was going on in the household, Diana seems to be really reluctant to speak to Catherine directly. So when Catherine would call to check on Michael, she would have to talk to one of the household staff if Michael wasn't available because Diana usually wouldn't come to the phone. So I mean, Hmm. like you can see like that would be kind of stressful. You don't know what's going on. You see that your son is living with this megastar that you only see her public persona. You know nothing about her personal life. All of a sudden, you know, your son's living with her and she's not talking to you. That's And he's 11. So it's gotta be really frustrating and kind Mm. of frightening. But the thing is, Catherine really didn't have to worry about what was going on at the house because Diana did nothing but nurture Michael's creative side. And she wasn't a party girl. She would go to bed early in order to be up for her appointments. And if anything, she passed on an excellent worth ethic to Michael that would serve him so well in the future. So she wouldn't go to these. She wasn't a party girl. She wasn't a drinker. She wasn't a smoker. She wasn't one of these, you know, girls that got into drugs and stuff, according to the book I read. I will say according to the book I read. But the one thing that she passed on him was her work ethic. That fact that you have to get work done before you have fun. Now, there were parties, but the work was done. On October 18th, marked another milestone for the Jackson Five and their appearance on national TV. It was the Hollywood Palace hosted by none other than Diana Ross. The Supremes were there too, but they didn't get much airtime. Backstage, Joseph kept peppering his boys with last minute advice like he always did before he performed. Michael found it easier at this point to tune Joseph out because He'd say the same thing a hundred times and then say him another hundred times. So Michael just catch the first time and then just tune him out. But something was different about this particular time. That evening, Joseph was more intense, according to Jack Lewis, who is a set designer on the program. He said that Joseph paced back and forth like a lion. Barry Gordy, who was backstage as well, uh, huddled up the boys and gave an impromptu conference. He sort of gave him like a pep talk beforehand. And when he was finished, not to be outdone, Mm -hmm. Joseph got them all together and did the same exact thing. So from behind the curtain, they heard Diana's introduction. I'm actually gonna play that for you right now. All right, this is The Hollywood Palace, Sammy and the Jackson Five. Mm -hmm.
1: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Hollywood Palace. It's wonderful to return as your hostess again, especially tonight when I have the pleasure of introducing a great young star, who has been in the business all of his life. He's worked with his family, and when he sings and dances, he lights up the stage. Here he is.
2: Thank you for that marvelous introduction, Diana. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to... Why why are you staring at me?
1: Well, because I wasn't introducing you. And, and, uh, you know, I don't want to lie to you until i can think of a, a real
0: good one well, what's what's the matter
1: well you see i, I was introducing uh someone else
2: hey, let me tell you something now you said young no. been in show business all his life and lights up the stage mm-hmm. now you want to tell me who's young who's been in show business all his life and lights up the stage except me and ed sullivan <laughs>
1: there's one other who michael jackson in the jackson five
3: And we are back. All right. So, yeah, I, I know that a podcast is an audio medium. So, number one, I might grab a screenshot from this and share it on our social media because, holy cow, these costumes are just 69-tastic. Um, but just to set the stage, it's the kid- You know, a fella could take that more than one way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a fella, a fella could, but a girl's not. So... <laughs> So the girl, the, the kids come out singing a sliced stone composition called a simple song. And they are all dressed alike, like they had for their appearance at the Daisy, which Diana also hosted. Remember the telegraph that she sent to everybody? No, you don't, because you were asleep, weren't you, T? Uh,
4: yeah, I was probably asleep, yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah, probably. Yeah, okay. So they did the show at the Daisy, and they were all dressed alike. And whew, so they are line green double-breasted, wide lapel, sleeveless jacket with matching bell bottoms and black sand suede boots. And they were all the exact same shape. Oh my God. I lo- I would wear that today just to be awesome. I did. So here's a cute little side note. People actually thought that Motown had purchased those outfits, but they were not from the wardrobe department at Motown. They were actually purchased off the rack by Joseph and Catherine back in Gary, Indiana. So they're making their dollar go farther. And I love that. Like, I love that they were off the rack.
0: And how did they find five of them in Gary, Indiana? That's my question.
3: I have no idea, but it was stunning and I love it. Now, what the kids didn't know was during their entire performance, Joseph, Barry, and Diana all got into a huge argument. What is this Michael Jackson and the Jackson 5 stuff, Joseph barked. Nobody told me about that. No one cleared it with me. Barry just shrugged and said that it wasn't written that way on the cue cards, that Diana had just blurted it out. She's that way. She does what she wants to do. Well, I don't like it, Joseph fumed. All the boys are equal. We're not singling out Michael from the rest. That will just cause problems. I think he was right. Like, I, I genuinely think that, like that it's, as a parental decision, when you have a kids group, I think that's really good.
0: Yeah. And he's done obviously some questionable things, but this seems to be one of the more stable decisions that he's made. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then really when you
4: have any band, take the family aspect out of it. When one person starts getting all the attention, it can cause problems within well, the band. Well, itself. Look, at,
3: look at no doubt,
4: no doubt. The bangles.
3: Um, um fergie with the black eyed peas yeah. yeah yeah i mean like it, just something as simple as that one clip of the video during walk like an egyptian tore yep. an entire band apart you yep. know you know and the whole video for don't speak is literally about the relationship that gwen was having with her band at the time even though it was about her ex-boyfriend right Who is also because
4: they, that, that actually is in that actually reenacting what really happened when they did the cover of it wasn't rolling stone it was another music magazine
3: oh i wish i knew i'll I'll look into it but yeah I,
4: i can't i can't remember off the top of my head but were they they were doing they were featuring no doubt and they cropped everybody else out and it was just Gwen on the cover
3: was it billboard it wasn't billboard we'll figure it out But it was at that point that Barry said that Joseph was wrong and that Michael was obviously the star. Joseph got even more angry. And I feel like that's a person you don't want to piss off.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah. And again, he he countered with, no, they're all stars. And that's when, again, Barry shrugged and said, it's too late now, which he was right. Like the damage was already done. And it's really interesting that there's a cute little bit at the beginning of the clip I played where she's doing her introduction of what you think is the Jackson 5, and then Sammy Davis Jr. comes out, and he's also another person we've actually covered on this very podcast. Not since Sammy Davis Jr. has the world seen such an amazing child performer. The thing was that Michael Jackson seemed so much more mature beyond his years that when he got behind the microphone, no one could honestly understand how a kid this age could grasp the kind of emotions that he was portraying in songs like Who's Loving You? like. A kid that's 11 doesn't know what real heartbreak is, but Michael could convey it. In his own words, Michael said, I gotta tell you the honest to God truth. I never knew what I was doing in the early days. Huh. I would just do it. So frustrated with the limitations and images of being purely seen as a hit singles band and having their last two albums fail, the group actually split up in 1969. Don't worry. I am not talking about the Jacksons. I'm talking about Manford Man's Earth Band. Oh, yeah. yes. <laughs> oh, oh. Ladies
0: and gentlemen, our Manford Man's Earth Band references the participants at If tj Two was a Muppet, that's how it sounds. <laughs> wow.
3: Manfred Earth Band, yeah. All right, and and folks at this time I just want to say <laughs> on a serious note, we understand that there are multiple iterations of the Manfred man's Earth Band including Manfred Man, Manfred man's chapter three and the Manfred man's Earth Band. but for the sake of this podcast they all go under the same umbrella because <laughs> technically I do believe that this was the end of Manfred man's chapter three, which is weird because that's only the second iteration of the band yes. <laughs> Ah, all right moving on
4: <laughs> hey ld hate to interrupt your flow there on uh, michael jackson but we need to take a quick commercial break
3: and we're back awesome let's get back to michael jackson at the beginning of november of 1969 gordy actually leased a house for the jacksons at 1601 queens road in los angeles Michael then moved out of Diana Ross's house and moved in with his father and his brothers. A month later in December, Catherine, LaToya, Janet, and Randy joined the rest of the family. Motown paid for all their flights, and that was their very first plane ride. Hmm. That day, the rest of the family returned. Catherine was overwhelmed by the size of the home, and apparently it was it was beautiful, but remember the house that they had in Gary, Indiana? How it was like two bedrooms and, and you walked in the front door and walked out the back door and, and that was a 10 people, yeah. Yeah, I think 11. Oh, so this house, you could go a whole day and not see half your family. It was huge. There was this beautiful panoramic view of the city below. And when the family got there, the kids all took off to their own areas to, to explore. And Catherine was left alone outside of her new home. And she loved it. She said that there was this beautiful sunset, there were crickets, there was the smell of jasmine in the air. And while she was enjoying this couple of minutes alone, she stood outside and someone from behind her, an unfamiliar voice said, lovely, isn't it? She turned around and she was face-to-face with Diana Ross. (laughs) She said, "Miss Jackson, I'm so happy to meet you. Your kids talk about you so much. They are just the best. And she was really happy to hear her kids being praised, but couldn't help but wonder why Diana Ross was at her house. (laughs) Catherine told Diana that she was grateful for everything that she had done for the boys and she was happy to raise them herself. She was very stern and told Diana that Michael needs his mother and that she had been gone too long. And the thing was, I think Diana was really sad at losing Michael because she had grown accustomed to being a surrogate mom, even though it was for such a short amount of time. But the fact was, she was really lonely. Like the thing is, she would take Michael to the store after he had gone through his school and they would go and pick out paints and colored pencils and they would sit there and they would draw or paint for hours. Like she was just like, how can I help this kid out?
0: It's probably the only semblance of a childhood that he had yeah pretty much
3: so she was i think really lonely would you like to stay for a cup of coffee catherine asked and diana turned it down and said that she had to run and without a word diana turned and walked into the night michael ran after her to say goodbye but diana didn't answer Mm. that is so sad very sad
0: image. That you know? is a
3: really sad image. Like, I don't know why, but like when I was writing that, it kind of hit me and it was really sad. So in December of 1969, Motown released the Brothers' first album, Diana Ross Presents the Jackson 5. It would go on to sell almost 700,000 copies, wow. which is an amazing number for her debut album. In Britain, it peaked at number 16 and remained in the top 100 for four weeks. And here's something ironic. In the liner notes, Diana Ross wrote, but when I think of my own personality of honesty, I think of something being straight out, all there on the table, the way that it is. That's how I feel about the Jackson 5. The kids who I discovered in Gary, Indiana, they've got great talent. Diana concluded, above all, they're honest. Unlike me, who claims that I discovered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, remember what we talked about last week? Or, I mean, you listen to the episode, so you know that there were at least two other people in line that could claim that they discovered the Jackson 5. Right. The kids didn't think that was right. There was a picture of the kids holding their instruments, but they didn't actually play on the album. The fact was that Barry didn't think that they were good enough to play their instruments on the album, so it didn't seem right to me tito grumbled look at this part tito said he pointed to diana's line about discovering the boys that's not true either bobby taylor was the one who discovered them so bobby taylor was in chicago at the apollo he was the apollo
0: guy okay yes
3: (laughs) and he was the one that found them so like mr keith or bobby taylor could have been in line for discovering the jackson five in front of diana Hmm. and don't get me wrong Diana seems like a wonderful person. Mm-hmm. She seemed like she genuinely cared about the boys, and she took really good care of Michael. So I don't have anything bad to say about that. This makes me wonder though:
4: Did she even write that?
3: Good question. I, it could have huh. come from Barry. Could have been
4: yeah. you know if because they're they're, they're presenting this album as Di- you know the, the name of it was what Diana Ross presents the Jackson Five or something yeah so that's exactly maybe maybe that's just maybe that's just part of of the sale job of kind of creating the illusion
3: but think it's entirely
4: it's entirely possible that diana had nothing to do with those liner notes
3: yeah but that's the thing it's
4: just just more it's just a way to promote and market the band and that record
3: but look at the effect that that could have on a kid too psychologically yeah but they they didn't care (laughs) <laughs> no but but again think about this is that PR spin that we talked about in the first and second episode that Michael would take to his grave
0: I object. The music industry has always taken very good care of artists when they first hit the scene. Just listen to our episode on Jim Crow, uh, oh um
3: or Tom P- head yeah. um, or Eddie T-L- Van Halen. Oh no no TLC no
0: no not them.
3: I may have
0: to rescind that remark.
3: You know what let's move on.
4: Yeah. Yeah. But but my point is that they're basically using Diana Ross because she was a huge huge name at the time to piggyback the Jackson 5 off of. So I would almost bet she didn't even write that. That's it was just thing, it dude. was part of the entire illusion and and the promotion that that Motown was putting together to launch gotcha. to yeah. them.
3: And that's the thing Barry Gordy knows how to spin. That's the thing. He mm-hmm. knows how to spend something because he has done this for so long. So having Diana say, I feel like this about the Jackson five, that is tantamount to, you know, somebody like Tony Bennett saying early on that I love Lady Gaga. Mm. You have an established artist saying that these kids that are up and coming are somebody that I respect. That gives them even more credence. And I'm not saying that, you know, Tony Bennett made Lady Gaga. I'm just saying like, he brought her to a different demographic just before anybody jumps on us. And I love Tony Bennett and I love Lady Gaga. She is a queen, okay? (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) later on in the month, on December 14th, 1969, the Jackson Five were on the Ed Sullivan Show. They had already made one public appearance, but come on, dude, it's the Ed Sullivan Show. That is like the mark that you had made it. And I don't think that, anybody has ever really talked about this but he's not exactly what you would call a great host like he had, no
4: he's really not
3: he he was really stiff and didn't smile a lot and he would mispronounce guests' names or yeah you know you ever you know it's funny is
4: if you go back and watch a lot of older shows you didn't actually have to be good at television to be on television back then
3: yeah the bar wasn't very high was it wasn't it was not and i think when i was younger i would often get Ed Sullivan and Richard Nixon.
4: <laughs> they're very similar. They, they <laughs>
3: look
0: alike. Yeah, they're that chin for days.
3: I mean, if yes. you think
0: anybody <laughs> can do this, well, the reality was, was the anyone guy? did.
4: Yeah. Who was the guy that hosted Rock Show? Was it Don Kirchner? I think that's right. Yeah, Don Kirchner. Very similar. Yeah. Like, he, he was not a compelling host <laughs> in any way. He's kind of there.
3: Yeah. I mean, but the thing was, Ed Sullivan carved out this very specific niche. And he had brought on, you know, the Beatles, he had brought on Elvis, like he had made the careers of these because he brought them to America, or he brought them to the masses.
0: I think he's the prime example of don't be the smartest guy in the room. Yeah. Bring in the out from the outside. Yeah.
3: So speaking of not being the brightest person in the room, once when Smokey Robinson and the Miracles were on the show, he actually... Introduce them as Smokey and his little Smokies, like the sausages. <laughs> I think, so. which is little, right? We learned that the other day. The little, little is it's, it's L-I-T apostrophe apostrophe L I T apostrophe L. little,
0: little smokies little, little Smoky.
4: Sm- <laughs> I've got his. Uh, I've got his new album. It's really good. A little Smoky.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's a little Smoky. So good. Is and the that, ra- that, that I, I'm satisfied? That has to be some rapper's name, doesn't it? Probably. Well, I know that there was Pop Smoke, which was uh, he actually passed away a couple of years ago, and that that really rocked the rap and R and B community. So, like, he should definitely be on our list too because he was pretty darn. But 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 uh,
4: Lil Smokey is alive and kicking.
3: Probably, I'm, I hope I, so. Somebody Google it. If only we had the collective right. knowledge of the entire internet. I have a device. <laughs> well, while you look that up, I'll keep going. So Sullivan introduced the sensational group, Marlon, Jackie, and Michael, flanked by Tito and Germain on guitars. They started in with their rendition of Sly Stone's song, Stand. They were dressed in a variety of mod clothes purchased off the rack in Greenwich Village by Suzanne DePasse. We talked about her. She was very influential in the early days of the Jackson 5.
0: DePasse, say it. DePasse.
3: And again, Michael was singled out as the star. He had on this little cute magenta hat and I'm pretty sure we've got pictures of that. And That just makes me so, he's just a little, he's got the tiny little head and he's got a little hat on and it's, oh, I just want to squeeze his cheeks.
0: <sighs> I'm that sorry. It's like a little Carmen Sandiego. Is that what you're going
3: for? <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. As in tradition with his guests, Sullivan engaged in some minimal banter, but soon turned his attention to a member of the audience and introduced to the folks at home one Diana Ross as the person who discovered the Jackson 5. Huh. She stood up and took a bow. It was uh, it was awkward, I think. So now it was a very difficult task for Motown to follow up the Jackson 5 with a number one recording with another chart topper. So it's like, it's that's a hard word to say, chart topper. It's, it's rough to come up with like that one-two punch of really good songs. Like, mm-hmm. it, can you, what is the, what in your mind, what do you think of as the last artist who had like that one-two one, two punch two, of incredible songs?
0: I'm trying to think of in terms of like albums, actually, but
3: not just albums. Songs. I'm talking about like songs. Like,
0: Just like two massive back-to-back two, hits?
3: Yeah. Ugh. I would say either Lizzo or Billie Eilish. Billie Eilish
0: is a really good guess, yeah.
3: Maybe Lady Gaga? I don't know. I mean, that's actually who I was thinking of. I don't know if I've got Gaga on the brain or not, but like... I think she might qualify. But when she hit, like, she was hitting Just Dance and Paparazzi and Telephone and um, Poker Face and, you know, she just had that bam, 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 bam. Everything that she was turning out was like number one hits. And And, and, probably Madonna, maybe? Maybe. Yeah. But the, the policy for Motown was to allow the writers and producers of a hit song the opportunity to come up with another one just as successful. Barry Gordy gave the chore to Deke Richards and the corporation, henceforth known as the corporation. One night at Fonce Mazzell and Freddie Perrin's apartment, they were fooling around on the electric piano and they started thinking about Holland and Dozer and Homeland and how often they use the same chord progression. They had a proven hit formula. So I took a section out of I Want You Back, the part where the group sings the chorus, and decided to make those exact same chords the foundation of the next single. And that was Deke Richards. He was sitting at the piano playing the chords and came up with the lyrics, A, B, C. Hmm. The other two looked at him like he was crazy. So now what? I know. How about one, two, three? I know that the guys thought I was nuts. And then I came up with the next big line. Do-Re-Mi, finish big with a bang, you and me. It also like, sounds like something people come up with when they're <laughs>
0: drunk at a party, and they're like, oh, that'd be it's awesome. Best thing yeah. ever. I'm Brilliant.
3: That's when Deke told his partners laughing, now that's a hit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, if you only knew. Well, you probably do now. Spoiler alert, they probably do now. According to Perrin, they came up with about 10 different verses before settling on the two that conveyed the right amount of energy and innocence. Perrin was a former schoolteacher, which influenced him to write the metaphors and the lyrics. Not long after that, the three men were in the studio recording the track ABC with Michael and his brothers. I loved ABC from the moment I first heard it. I actually had more enthusiasm than I did for I Want You Back, Michael said. Hmm. So on February of 1970, Motown released ABC as the Jackson 5's second single. Second major single. It went straight to the top of the Billboard charts in just six weeks, unseating Let It Be Ooh, by the Beatles. Good
0: great. Knock out the Beatles,
3: huh? The song sold over two million copies. Yeah. Which was even more than I Want You Back. And so it ushered in this new bubblegum style of music. In the UK, the song peaked at number eight and remained on the charts for almost three months. So let's listen to that song now because it's awesome. So here is the Jackson 5 with ABC. back do we have thoughts on this
4: yes i have a prominent thought
3: yes (laughs) my brother's been drinking well done
4: this will be my final comment on this matter
3: (laughs) (laughs) um actually it was really cute because when i was doing my um research for this episode i found a clip on the carol burnett show of them doing the song with carol burnett oh my god you showed that to me yeah it was so funny it was so cute but the thing is, they had an earthquake in the middle of the show. <laughs> Did oh, they actually have one, yes. or was that? Okay. I think there was actually an earthquake in the middle of the show, unless a camera guy just got taken out halfway through. But, yeah, it was – if you can find that on uh, YouTube, it's really cute. It's also, like, nine minutes, so I wasn't going to play it here. But, you know, just so you have that in the back of your mind. There you go.
4: Now, with armed with the knowledge that you gave us before you played it, I mean – Musically, it does sound an awful lot like I Want You Back.
3: It's really frankly, does. Very close. It does. Almost
4: verbatim, frankly.
3: Well, the thing is, they say there's three chords and you can write a hit song and there have been several skits. <laughs> the Axis of Awesome. Of the Axis of Awesome being one of them. This is like every pop song is these three chords and it is hilariously accurate and kind of sad. But yeah, I mean, it does sound a lot like I Want You Back, but that's what people wanted. And so Barry kept asking, what about a follow-up? What about a follow-up? He wanted a third one to keep the momentum going. They were cutting the track for the third song at the Sound Factory in Hollywood. It should also be noted that Barry never came to track sessions, but he came to this one.
1: Hmm.
3: And he listened to the song for about 15 minutes and said, I'm not worried, you guys have another hit. And that was it. The third song was The Love You Save, which was released on May of 1970. And it was another terrific, teeny bopper song with Michael at the helm. And it sold over a million copies. And
4: now that I'm thinking about it, <laughs> musically, it sounds very similar to the two predecessors.
3: Yes, it is. It's almost two uh-huh. million. Uh, yeah, they also, the, I, was, I was incorrect. They sold close to two million copies. Mm-hmm. It wasn't over a million. It was almost two million. That is... An understatement. What I just so, saying.
4: so would they have been considered one of the first boy bands?
3: Yes, absolutely. Along with are the monkeys, <laughs> yeah. Like that idea of you have this construct of guys that are out there with personalities, not just people that are singers. You know, right? You go out there and you have a shtick. Like the monkeys were doing stuff. I, I, I honestly consider the monkeys the first boy band. Mm. Now there had
4: been other musical acts that featured young men or or ones who age-wise would have been considered boys still i mean michael's what 11 or 12 years old at this point but they were actually and i don't i don't mean this as a knock at the jacksons but you know they they you know like the beatles they were real musicians not that the jacksons didn't play their instruments but it sounds it sounds like at least in barry gordy's eyes and he would know more about music than i am yeah they can get by live but they're not playing in the studio exactly they're not writing, and they're not writing the songs you know what i mean and that's more what i think about when i think when and i when i get in my mind of what a boy band is
3: yeah i mean they kind of paved the way for what i would consider like the next kind of benchmark in boy bands Mm -hmm. which was the new kids on the block
4: yeah yeah well there were were a few in between there but yeah that would have been the one of the next really really huge you know blow up huge ones
3: Yeah, I'm actually going to get to that in like two seconds about what happens right after they hit it big. So hold on that thought for about four sentences. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So copies of the Love You Save came up a little short in comparison to the sales of the last two singles, but it was still a huge hit. And the song gave the Jackson 5 the distinction of being the first group of the rock and roll era to have their first three songs top the charts. And again, they knocked the Beatles out of the number one spot. They did it twice? They did it twice. (laughs) They dethroned the long and winding road. So they pushed it out of the number one spot. And all the kids were really proud. And the fact was they had helped pioneer a new sound for a new decade. It was the first time in recorded history that a bunch of kids made that many hit records. And when they started, there wasn't much way in comparison when it came to this family band kind of dynamic, but that was about to change because of course, you know, the music industry sees something that works and they're like, let's get a thousand of these. You had the Osmonds, you had the DeFranco family, you had the Partridge family, you even to some extent had the Brady Bunch. And the Osmonds were already around and doing a very similar style of music, which was uh, it was like barbershop harmony and crooning. But as soon as the Jacksons hit and other groups started getting notoriety, they kind of switched into soul music really fast.
4: Yeah. I was going to say, though, I really can't think of another group that was comprised primarily of African-Americans until like New Edition,
3: maybe? Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, these yeah. are,
4: you know, I mean, you know, you're talking about, you know, the Osmonds and all these other folks. I mean, yeah, they they were probably ripping generally off the jack survive but there still was something that made them a little bit unique and stand out from the rest of these that, that were getting thrust forward at this point i would imagine
3: oh yeah no when you look at the osmonds and the partridge family the brady bunch they're like ranch dressing mayo and glue yeah. just mm-hmm. white as can be and that was the thing is then they tried to switch over to soul music but Uh, You know, the Jacksons did it first. They they were the pioneers. And some did it actually so well that to this day, some people think the song One Bad Apple was the Jackson 5, but it wasn't. So I'm going to play a little bit of One Bad Apple just to show you how close people were trying to replicate the Jackson 5. I'm only going to play like 30 seconds of this, so don't get too comfortable. We will be right back. So here is One Bad Apple.
1: So God brought to your happy world. You mean love.
3: Okay, so you can yep. see the similarities, oh, right? I mean, I'm surprised I didn't sue him. I mean- <laughs> yeah,
4: I, I, I was going to say, it's more than similarities, right down to the precocious little boy who sings really high, being up at the forefront, and er- everything. Yes, that, that, that that's a straight, real.
3: Yeah, that was the Osmonds. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that precocious little boy might be Donnie Osmond. I <laughs>
4: believe that is probably Donnie.
3: Yep, yep and uh so you can see like they they were they were really good at replicating it but i don't i don't think and i wasn't around at the time so i could be wrong so please if you guys were around during that time reach out to us and let us know i don't think that they had like the staying power and or the same audience that the jackson five would have
1: hmm.
3: thoughts on that
4: no probably not you um, can imagine yeah yeah but it's 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 any you of know, that's the song you just played, I mean we're we you know all familiar with it. it's I mean it's not bad or anything, but no. it's a rip off. It's not authentic. That is a a straight up cash grab cashing in on something else that was already popular, like you mentioned.
3: right. And the thing is, I have a soft spot for Donny Osmond for a couple reasons. Number one, pretty sure he was the peacock on the mass singer. Donny Osmond? yeah, yeah, he was on there. and then he was also on he was also on Broadway, so of course, like, I love him because he was Joseph and he's done Mm -hmm. a couple of different roles on Broadway. And I I actually really love him. So like, again, he was also kind of the standout it was, and then there was Donnie and Marie. So, you know, they, he did have staying power, kind of like Michael did, but that family dynamic would eventually break up. Mm. So anyway, the Jackson five made their first concert appearance as a Motown attraction at the Philadelphia Convention Center on Saturday evening, May the 2nd, 1970. And this was not just a single concert. Oh no, it was a full tour. (sighs) The the brothers performed in U.S. cities such as uh, Daly City, Boston, Cincinnati, New York, and broke venue attendance records along the way. The concert schedule for Buffalo actually had to be canceled due to death threats being made on Michael Jackson's life. Wow. He's 11, 12. What are you you doing? He is a child. What are you doing? Uh. Anyway, 9,000 fans were refunded their money as a result. No one could have guessed how popular these kids would become in barely five months. More than 3,500 screaming fans mobbed the Philadelphia International Airport hoping to catch a glimpse of the Jackson 5. The cops had to be called out to protect the boys. The, the same event happened at the next concert where 100 police officers had to form a line backstage to get the boys in safely. They had a 3 motorcycle escort limousines which managed to somehow miraculously get the boys back and forth from venue to the hotel in one piece. When they got back to the hotel at the night of Philadelphia, Michael actually broke down into tears. He said, I don't know if I can do this forever. Maybe for a little while, but not forever. That is so sad. It was really sad. At this time, Barry actually moved them from their home on Queens Road to an even bigger house on Beaumont Drive. Liberace actually lived near them, as did Davy Jones of the Monkees we actually got to see a couple weeks ago at this point, and they were amazing. The
0: two that were left, yes.
3: The two that were left were amazing. So I have been in a room with three out of the four monkeys. Four monkeys? <laughs> I'm, I'm short one monkey. Monkey majority. Um. Now, what was their next single? What do you think it was? After ABC? It, it was, it was uh-huh. I'll Be There. Yeah, I was going to say. It, it was I'll Be There. Okay. Okay. <laughs> So if you guys that
4: that at least broke the mold a little bit,
3: it was it was much more somber and sweet and sort of syrupy but and romantic. But yeah, it was it was still kid friendly. It it was
4: still kid friendly, but it wasn't essentially the same music with new lyrics like their previous three singles had been. Correct. This was a ballad. I mean, this was a musically. This was a little bit of a change up, at least
3: because it wasn't written by the corporation. Right. It was actually written by Barry Gordy, Hal Davis, Bob West, and Willie Hutch. So you had four writers on this song, and it was a monster. The song was recorded by the Jackson Five and released by Motown on August the 28th, 1970, as the first single from their third album on the same date. Produced by the songwriters, I'll Be There was the Jackson Five's fourth number one hit in a row after I Want You Back, ABC, and The Love You Save. That that is such a monster lineup of songs. Just on fire. Yeah, making them the first group to have their first four singles reach number one, and the first black male group with four consecutive number one pop hits. I'll be there. Is also notable for the success uh, for the successful single. Released by Motown during its Detroit era, this song was actually inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. In his autobiography, Moonwalk, Michael Jackson noted that i was the song that solidified the Jackson Pipes career. It showed the audience that they had potential beyond bubblegum pop. Said all music about the song, rarely if ever do you have one so young sing with so much authority and grace investing this achly, tender ballad with wisdom and understanding far beyond his years. Michael turned 12 one day after the song was released. The most successful single ever released by the Jackson 5, I'll Be There sold 4.2 million copies in the U.S. and 6.1 million copies worldwide. It replaced Marvin Gaye's I Heard It Through the Grapevine as the most successful single released on Motown in the U.S., and it held the record until the release of Lionel Richie's duet with Diana Ross's Endless Love. And that, that song came out in 1981. So it held the record for the 12 most, years. For, yeah, for 12 years. I was trying to do math, and I'm like, I don't know if I can do math right now. You could have taken right now off that sentence. I just <laughs> don't
4: know if you can do math. <laughs> <laughs> we, all have, we all have strengths and weaknesses, and I think we know what yours is.
3: Oh, oh yeah. It's not math. Math is, math is not my strong suit. So the song held the number one position on the Billboard Pop Singles Charts for five weeks from October 17th to November 14th, replacing... Cracklin' Rose by Neil Diamond.
0: Oh,
4: Neil
0: Diamond! <laughs> <laughs> Rock and roll heaven, thank you! Yeah.
3: And then it was actually succeeded by a song that I actually adore, and it is a guilty pleasure of mine. It was replaced by the Partridge families, I Think I Love You. Well, we've covered, uh, right? Uh, yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I love that song
0: so much. I remember that being the second choice is the Bonaduce.
3: Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll be there was also a number one hit on the billboards black singles charts for six weeks and number four in the United Kingdom. The singles B-side was One More Chance, a song from their second album. So right now I'm going to play you one of the biggest hits from the Jackson five. This is I'll be there. That is such a That's good song. Just
4: a good song. You can't. It's just the perfectly crafted pop song.
3: Yeah, it really is, and like it'll hit you in the feels. Oh yeah, it's just, not vapid. No, it's not. It's it, and given the subject matter, uh, like the the ability for Michael to grasp what he is singing and express that and have feeling behind that, like holy crap, what kind of twelve year old can do yeah, that? Like yeah, twelve years old. It's incredible. Uh, So with the kid's success, they were really hoping that they'd be able to surpass Barry's expectations and then in turn be able to pay him back for all the effort that he had made for them. They really did look up to Barry. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: Uh, In October of 1970, the group took their act on the road again for additional days on the East Coast on a tour. Three days in Texas were in jeopardy because the, the concert was opposed by the members of the Southern Christian Leadership Council. Operation Breadbasket, which just rolls off the tongue. Good job on naming that, guys. Wow. It was the organization dedicated to improving the economic conditions in the Black community. Dick Clark was promoting the tour, and the Breadbasket representatives felt that someone Black should have been hired by Motown. And he said, that is very gory. literally is like, that is ridiculous. <laughs> black, white, I don't care. What the hell's the difference as long as we all make money? <laughs> which I think- pretty much the whole that just sums the whole music industry up
0: that
4: sums up the entire music industry pretty much but yeah well why do they have this guy
3: doing it because it's dick bleeping clark yeah yeah do you understand the reach that dick clark had at this time it's insane Yeah, yeah. And so the protesters had flyers printed up and they were prepared to pick it at the concert site. And the press was just waiting for a scandal. So Barry told them to cancel. Tell them to cancel the whole goddamn state. They'll see Jackson 5 when they get some sense. And so the dates in Texas were canceled. Hmm. And the fact was that the Jackson 5 were bigger than any race issue. Barry Gordy said later on that nobody can tell me how to run those boys' careers. Black, white, I make the decisions. This is my group. And I'm pretty sure that Joseph Jackson had a couple words with him about that. Yeah. Now, they finished the year off with a song called Mama's Pearl, which was stylistically on par with everything else they had done. They had left uh, Deke alone this time to come up with the lyrics for the song that they had called, Guess Who's Making Whoopie With Your Girlfriend? (laughs) (laughs) a working title i presume oh after barry gore you got a hold of him yeah it was a working title uh they basically wrote a song about girlfriend swapping and all right it is it is an understatement to say that is not exactly the 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 idea that you wanted to put upon a 12 year old no so uh, they changed the lyrics, but not the music. They didn't change the track. They just changed the lyrics, and in a short time, they had come up with "Mama's Pearl."
4: And they and they followed. They followed up uh, "Making Whoopi to Your Girlfriend" with uh, another feel-good hit: "Shooting Heroin into Your Ball."
1: that's
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, a lesser-known hit. Yeah. What, like, like to to <laughs> whom did that? To whom did that make any sense? Hey, <laughs> hey, the the twelve-year-olds that have sung the the, uh, the kind of candy corn, white bread little pop music.
3: Let's have them do one about swapping. I I can't like- What in the hell? <laughs> we have a great new song called, I've decided to become a furry. That's a thing? <laughs> uh,
4: with, the, with the B side, let me poop on your face.
3: <laughs> R. Kelly already did that.
4: Oh. Anyway. Oh.
1: <laughs> oh
4: my goodness! No, he, no, he just covered it later.
3: <laughs> uh, oh, <God>. <laughs> oh. <laughs> to the folks, to the folks at home, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sit on my face and tell me that you are Okay. <laughs> it's time for you to go to bed. Sweetheart. Okay. Good night. <laughs> I'm, <sorry>. I'm sleepy. <laughs> so, like I said, they had them change. The lyrics to be more <laughs> friendly for a twelve-year-old. Oh lord! Oh goodness! Now, when they released oh. the song, it only oh. went to number two on the Billboard chart. But number it went to- two. Oh god! At the sound of the tone, it will be nine forty-eight on the-, the West Coast. Oh. Ding! Oh. All right, right. okay. All right, breathe, All right. breathe. Okay.
0: Well, oh. If you Google little smokies, the first thing that comes up is, do you have to cook them? Do you? And well, do you see? we're just shoveling them out of a bag into their mouth. What, what I would. Uh, I don't know. I don't. Know. I would.
4: Uh, I would just say the uh, the ideal way to do them is to uh, put them in a pot uh, on the stove on the simmer with some barbecue sauce in them.
0: I would sure, agree. That actually yeah.
3: sounds very good. Yes. So eat
4: them with toothpicks. Amen.
3: So this song did go to number one on Cashbox. But number two on the billboard, but Barry was satisfied. Now, the year 1971 started out kind of sentimental. On January 31st, the Jackson 5 returned to Gary, Indiana, and at this time, Jackie was 19, uh, Tito was 17, Jermaine was 16, Marlon was 13, and Michael was 12. On behalf of Mayor Richard Gordon Hatcher's re-election campaign, the group was asked to perform two concerts at Westside High School. Both concerts were sold out. I I think I'm, I misnumbered this because I have 15,000 lucky ticket holders came to pay a homage, but I think it was... A thousand i think it's 1500 not fifteen that
4: that'd be a lot that'd be a really big high school gym
3: yeah very big uh came to pay homage to their five heroes of their hometown now <laughs> i just want to you remember the hypocrisy of this because two years ago the same people who were cheering for them now were throwing rocks through their windows and taunting them on street corners after their first concert mayor hatcher escorted the jackson family back to their former resident on jackson street which had been renamed the jackson five boulevard in their honor for the day a sign was placed on the lawn of their old home which said welcome home jackson five keeper of the dream Uh, anyway i get i get really frustrated when people are so two-faced they're like you know you'll never make it and then you make it you're like oh hey i knew you'd make it all the time (laughs) Right. anyway uh, the next stop was City Hall, where they got individual keys to the city, uh, which I think is, I, I want the key to a city. I want to be awesome. Like any city, or yeah. did you get to pick? I'm, I guess Chester. <laughs> key to <of> the city of <laughs> Chester? Yeah, I mean, I think you could pretty much walk into any building at home in Chester, but I mean, it'd just be nice to have a key in case I need to. have the
0: key, right. Yeah, I think in most places in Jersey, they just give you a Slim Jim. They're like, here, <laughs> <laughs> welcome to Newark. Yeah.
3: Their next hit is a a relatively small song that you probably never heard of before called Never Can Say Goodbye. What? (laughs) It was a song written by Clifton Davis. Now, the song was actually originally intended for the Supremes. However, Motown decided it would actually be better for the Jackson 5. It was the first single released from their 1971 album, Maybe Tomorrow, and it was one of the group's most successful records. Now, it has been covered numerous times, most notably in 1974 by Gloria Gaynor and in 1987 by a British pop group. But the one that I think will most excite my brother was that Isaac Hayes did it the same year, 1971. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't
4: know that. I, I I don't think I've ever heard Isaac's version of that.
3: Yeah. Yeah, we'll have to look it up later, but he released it on his album, Black Moses. Uh, And I I would be interested in listening to that because I think we're all, this family is a big fan of Isaac Hayes. And I've actually been to an Isaac Hayes concert. I got my photo with him. It was awesome. Loved it. And he was, he is, he was such a performer and he had so much charisma. I loved him. I thought he was great. Now it was released as a single. This version reached number five. Now this is Isaac Hayes's Reached number five on the Billboard R&B chart, number 19 on the Easy Listening chart, and number 22 on the Hot 100. Hayes re-recorded the tune for the soundtrack of the 2008 film Soulman, which he actually appeared in because Isaac Hayes was an actor, for those who don't know, alongside Samuel L. Jackson and Bernie Mac. The film's producer dedicated the 2008 version to Mac and Hayes, who both died before the project was released, making Isaac Hayes eligible for this podcast.
4: Yeah. So, Something just
3: popped in my head I have to ask, or I'm going to forget. Yeah.
4: You said the writer of the song was Clifton Davis. Yes, it was. The actor. It okay. So it's the from the guy from That's My Mama. And yes. Amen. Yep. He okay, I did I did not know he was a songwriter. Okay, that's that name kept bouncing around in my head and I'm like, why do I know that name?
1: Yeah. And I finally right.
4: thought, like,
3: that's he's the preacher from Amen. Which, by the way, was one of my top five favorite TV theme songs of all time. Amen. Yeah, that's a good one. Turn I mean, on
1: no. the light from
0: heaven,
4: heaven, Lord, heaven. Shine, shine on, on me. me. Yeah. Turn on the light from heaven, look Shine on me.
3: Shine on me. Shine on me. On. Oh. Shine on me. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> yeah. Number one, of course, being the greatest American hero, followed by Perfect Strangers, followed by The Golden Girls.
0: Perfect Strangers is probably the most inspirational sitcom theme. No,
3: I, I disagree. One With of. You, one of. It is in the top two. (laughs) We could have this argument all night. So hopping back to the boys. Now, the problem with Never Can't Say Goodbye is that it only managed a 33 top position on the UK charts. It still did well in America, but now Gordy was beginning to get a little concerned about the group's international appeal. So the songwriter, Clifton Davis, recalled that it was an emotional song that meant a lot to me when I wrote it. And I was worried that Michael might not understand the lyrics of Pain and Heartbreak. I recall Michael asking about one of the lines. What does this word mean, anguish? He asked me, I explained it. He shrugged his shoulders and sang the line. Hmm. There is anguish, there's doubt. He sang it and I believed him. And that came from Clifton Davis, the actual songwriter. So Uh, in May of 1970, after the boys returned from another national tour, The Jacksons moved into their large estate at 4641 Havenhurst in Encino, California. This house is actually still home to any of the Jacksons that aren't Michael or Janet. (laughs) Like the rest of the family, I think, pretty much still lives there to this day. Wow. At least some members do to this day. I can't be certain. I didn't go and like knock on the door and ask. I don't know if they'd appreciate that. So Joseph and Catherine purchased the property for $250,000. They moved into their home the day after Catherine's 41st birthday. She actually asked Joseph not to sell their home in Gary just in case the family's fortune took a turn for the worst, and they all had to move back to Indiana. I do not know how they thought everyone would fit in that house again. The thing is that Joseph didn't sell the house. He decided to rent out the property, and now it's worth roughly $100,000. What? and is still owned by the family to this day how is it wow. that? i don't know because i don't know if legacy translates to land property prices oh, i don't know either i don't know but they still, the family still owns the house
4: but a hundred grand is not a lot for a She's house
3: it is not 250,000 this day is not
4: that bad. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, and I don't, I don't know if it's, if maybe it's not in a great part of town or it's a, maybe it's a tiny house or something, but just, you know, just cause the Jacksons live there may not. It, that would give it appeal to certain people and increase the value. But in terms of actually increasing the value value of the house, it would, I don't guess that would really do anything.
3: You could probably sell it For more than a hundred thousand, just on the the Jackson lived here alone. But
4: but that's not going to change, like the appraised value of
3: it. Correct. Right. Yeah. I mean, you could probably swoop in with a million dollars and say, "I want to buy this house." But the fact is, like, I don't think the family would sell no matter how much you were going to give them.
4: Well, if they if they haven't yet, then yeah, I would presume they're probably not going to.
3: Yeah. Adding to the folks living under the same roof was Johnny Jackson and Ronnie Ransford. They moved into the house as well because basically Joseph was worried that not living under the same roof as them was going to be bad for them because they'd have the drinking and the smoking to deal with. And so you got all the kids, the entire band is now living in the house with Janet, Latoya, uh, Randy, and Catherine. So the whole family's there. Hail, hail, the gang's all here. (laughs) So the Jacksons are becoming more and more famous and something called Jackson mania started to take hold. The Jacksons' phone number would have to be routinely changed by the phone company literally every month to guard against anybody on the outside having it. Nonetheless, somehow the number always got out. One time a girl from Newark, New Jersey called to talk to Michael at two in the morning. Yeah. Literally the day after the new number was assigned, so she called at 5 a.m. It's impressive. I'm I, that is dedication, a mental level of dedication. And Joseph's five-minute phone call rule would remain, and he was not afraid to literally use a strap on any family member who broke that rule. And I'm assuming, and I, you know, maybe I'm overstepping, and and someone will yell at me, but I feel like maybe he probably did it to Ronnie and Johnny as well. Mm. Like I don't know why, but I get that feeling like if they had broken the five minute rule too, they might have gotten the strap. Hmm. I don't know. At this point right. though,
4: a couple of a couple of the of the of these of the Jackson Five members, I mean, these are not little children anymore. I mean, they're grown men. They're they're almost 20. They're they're adult. I mean, they they're adults, they're late teens. I mean, at a certain point, do you start swinging back or
3: I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, remember in the in the first episode i talked about how michael was the only one that would kind of stand up to joseph
4: maybe or maybe they they just been so cowed by him for so long that it just sticks even in adulthood i don't I mean I, I don't know how that works because we didn't have to deal with that fortunately but um yeah i mean I, you would think though at a certain point you're 19 or 20 years old and the testosterone's pumping and daddy pops you with a strap you might pop him back
3: oh. there is a chance yeah There is a chance. And I just, I, this is about Michael, and these episodes are about the Jackson Five. And yeah, I mean, from all accounts that I understand and from what I've read, Joseph was a monster. And the fact that I haven't talked much about the abuse that the kids were under at the time were because they weren't. In the two books that I read, uh,
4: but the other thing is he was—he's also a, a physically large man, right? And, yes. and a former boxer. Maybe that's why, if 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 the kids once they got older didn't fight back, maybe that's why.
3: That is a possibility. Or what do you do? You you threaten to take them out of the group that they're in, right? There, I mean, there are literally other kids that could take their spot,
4: right? He holds he holds financial and professional leverage. On yeah. them. Yep.
3: Yeah. Absolutely. Sure. So, turning to another aspect, June of 1971, the kids released another single called "Maybe Tomorrow," which went on to sell less than 9,000 copies, and it wasn't good.
4: Wait, as wait. It Na- nine?
3: Sorry, nine hundred thousand. My bad. Oh, okay. <laughs> nine hundred thousand. Okay. Well, that's quite. That's quite. A,
4: that's quite different.
3: Yes. Yes. Yes, it is. It wasn't good as their previous singles, but it was still respectable. That's still. 900,000 more copies than I've ever sold. A month later, the group taped its first television special called Going Back to Indiana for ABC. And this is, they had they had been guests on other shows, but this is the first one that, that was theirs. And so they became Motown's main marketing focus and the label capitalized on that group's youth appeal. They licensed dozens of products. They included the J5 Heart logo on Johnny Jackson's drum set, the group's album covers, stickers, posters, coloring books, board games, and you'll love this, will the thrill Mm -hmm. a sunday morning cartoon produced by rankin bass oh yes the hobbit yes uh the jackson's voice were actually featured in all the musical numbers but the dialogue was actually performed by young black actors Mm -hmm. the mania got so bad that when they performed a tour that summer they did 50 shows which is like the longest series of one night performances they had done and their biggest wish was they wished that they could finish a show because they had a really good ending but they never got to do it because people would rush the stage at the end of the show and they would have to be like swooped away by security oh wow at madison square garden august of that year the show had to be stopped after only 2 minutes Jeez. when the that's not even a song no that's introduction and part of a song because the audience stormed the stage michael started freaking out and begged people to return to their seats and ultimately the group had to be extracted from the crowd and rushed away from the premises the show resumed after the audience calmed down And an hour later when the concert was finishing up they had to sprint out to their limousine in the middle of their last number in order to get away as quickly as possible the audiences were wrecked. Once the fans realized that the group were gone, they swarmed the stage. They broke through security lines and made it all the way back to their dressing rooms. Yikes. So you can see how scary this is for kids. you know.
4: Which, which also happened to David Cassidy at Madison square garden. Yeah. We covered him uh, last year. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Well, David Cassidy. You, you, you like-
4: think that like at a certain point, the, you know, people in charge of security would start to take note of these things and make adjustments, but I don't guess that happened.
3: Nope. Now, because of that, I, I want you to take like a second to imagine what that does for a 12 year old. Michael has basically been sheltered his entire life, first by his father, then by his record label. And up to this point, his best friends were his family. Like his whole life has been his family. And he does have fond memories of this time. And he and his brothers would do things like play Scrabble and Monopoly and card games. And they gave uh, Jermaine the nickname of Las Vegas because he was actually becoming a very skilled card shark. (laughs) But they also liked to throw water balloons or bags filled with water from the hotel windows or the roofs or have pillow fights with each other. They were always cooped up in the hotel. So they had to kind of make do with what they had. So that was the kind of fun that they would have. And at the time, Michael was kind of a prankster because he would (laughs) do things like phone room service and order these huge meals, mm-hmm. and then have them sent to the rooms of strangers in the hotel. Like kind of a dick move. for them? I don't know. I tried to find that and I could not find the answer. He'd also set up like that, but you know, okay, you know the, the prank where you set up a bucket of water on the door? and then somebody opens up the door and the water goes on them. Mm-hmm. They would do that constantly. Didn't matter who got soaked. They would just do that. And oftentimes it was Jermaine because they would always room Michael with Jermaine. So Jermaine was occasionally the uh, recipient of mm-hmm. that that prank. And then occasionally, because they were red-blooded American males, one of the Jackson's head would turn to the opposite sex. So backstage at the Hollywood Bowl, yay, Hollywood Bowl, mm-hmm. They were performing, and uh, Barry Gordy's 16-year-old daughter, Hazel, had her arm around Jermaine. He was also 16, and she seemed to be nibbling on his ear. So Joseph watched, and then he pulled Jermaine aside, and he demanded to know what the deal was with her. And Jermaine just like shrugged and said, she likes me, I guess. Joseph was actually pretty impressed because that was Barry Gordy's kid. (laughs) But during the concert... Jermaine decided to dedicate his solo of Bridge Over Troubled Water for Hazel for her birthday. The audience did not like that.
1: Mm.
3: The reaction was lukewarm at best, whereas he usually got like a standing ovation at the end of that song. The female fans in the crowd did not appreciate that little send-off. At the end of the night, Joseph pulled him aside and told him that he'd better not do it again, and he never did. Now, as most of you know, the music industry is pretty cutthroat. And Joseph always had his eye on competition, specifically the Osmond brothers. And they were a family group from Salt Lake City, Utah. And they were the same ones that did the song One Bad Apple that I played for you earlier. And I'm sure most people who have listen to this podcast know who the Osmonds are. In 1971, MGM Records released Sweet and Innocent by the youngest member of the group, Donnie, as a solo act. The record success guaranteed him star status. And remember, when you get star status, what happens? People start taking your picture and putting it in magazines. Mm. Predominantly white teeny bopper magazines. So Donny Osmond was everywhere in these predominantly white teeny bopper magazines. And Joseph saw this as racism. Because of their color, the Jackson 5 could never be perceived as teen idols in those magazines, despite all of their success and good looks the, the Jackson 5 would occasionally make appearances in magazines like 16 and Fave, but Donnie was plastered over every single magazine. And of course, Joseph saw this as racism. And honestly, like, I don't disagree with him on yeah. that front. I don't. Now, after Donnie's hit, Joseph made a decision that Michael should also record a song of his own. So he and Barry Gordy decided to release the song got to be there as his first solo. It was originally intended to be a song for the entire group, but because they wanted to have Michael stand out, this would be his solo, just like Donnie had. He would still be a Motown artist with the Jackson Five, but he would also be a solo Motown artist. And that way they can make a lot more money, (laughs) Joseph reasoned. But I don't think he understood what he had done that day when he separated Michael from his brothers. And I'm pretty sure that you guys know where this is going. Got to Be There was issued in October. The single was an immediate success, reaching number one on Cashbox pop and r and single charts while reaching number four on Billboard's pop and r and singles charts. Although it wouldn't reach the absolute highest high of the charts, it was a reality check of sorts for the Jackson brothers. And they saw that Michael could crack the top five on his own without their help. In England, it was a number five hit and stayed on the top 50 for almost three months. Worldwide, got to be there, sold almost 1,600,000 copies. Wow. Now, remember, that still did better than Mama's Pearl. Immediately after Christmas in 1971, the family embarked on a concert tour of the South. And this time, they actually did perform in Texas. A reporter had arranged for an interview prior to the concert in their hotel, but that was interrupted when a massive crowd broke in to their hotel room, literally broke the door down screaming, Michael, Michael, Michael. Tito went out into the hallway hoping to quiet them down. And then when he opened up the door, the girls broke it. Like they, they busted in and they did not see any of the other Jacksons. They were there for Michael. Now, you know, if you saw this happening, you might be like, dude, what what the hell? You know, but it didn't really seem to affect the other brothers. They didn't seem too jealous. And they actually turned it into a way to tease their brother. <laughs> Just wait until I get my solo song released, Jermaine said, then I'll be the ladies' man. Well, Michael's the real ladies' man, Jackie said, after the girls were escorted out of the room by security guards. Yes. I mean, can you imagine that scene? Like, you're in an interview. There's a massive crowd of girls outside. You, you barely crack the door, and it is smashed. And then just this flood of women break into your room, and then are basically drag kicking and screaming out. By security. I, by security. The thing is, Michael was extremely bashful until Jermaine said, well, not for long. And then all four brothers jumped on Michael and began tickling him because that's where i'm going to end this week's episode on a very sweet brotherly love note do we have any parting thoughts kids
4: yeah this is um there's there's so so far there has been nothing grounded or normal about his life
3: no no
0: No.
4: yeah right right up to the last part because you sit there will and you think like imagine being 12 and you know you have uh, hit singles and you're touring and you're being interviewed for some magazine and a bunch of girls bust into your hotel room god i can't imagine the level of a jackass that i would have
1: been oh yeah uh,
4: the of the the absolutely self-absorbed jackass that I, that would have turned me into
3: yeah i mean and the, and the thing is michael's taken this all very well like the, the so far the kids have played harmless pranks like yeah. none of them are bad kids. I would go so far as to say they were all really good kids and he's just bottled up all the time. Like he's never had a childhood. Later on when we get to his adult life, which will probably be about 15 episodes from now, (laughs) you're gonna see that in the way he behaves, in the way he lives his life. Like there comes a point where for me, I feel like his mentality froze when it came to his childhood because he never had one right so i i I know we're gonna get into much deeper much darker things i just really want to end it on something cute where they're like ribbing him about getting Mm -hmm. attacked by all these women and you know he's super shy about it and you know they're they're all they're all brothers they're very close and they they all love each other and that that is something that i can say is that in the end at least the first 12 years it seems like the brothers were so close and just genuinely loved each other, genuinely cared about each other. About to go
0: sideways, yeah.
3: Probably, yeah. Who knows? <laughs> I don't even know what's next. I don't even know what's coming next. We might not get to sixteen. <laughs> I don't know. He had a very full life. Mm-hmm. Um. All right, T. Do you have anything to say on the back end? Uh,
4: about the back end? What?
3: Okay. All <laughs> On right. That note. Yeah. And I mean and, I'm awake
4: this. I'm awake this week at
3: least. I mean, you're here for the close. So I'm very proud of you. So right. I'll do our socials, we'll say goodbye, and we'll I'll tell you guys about the last song. Nice. So if you think that we're doing a great job or you just want to give my brother a dollar because he stayed awake the entire episode. Worth $2. <laughs> yeah, two dollars. Support the show at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can find us over on Twitter occasionally, Rock and Roll LT. You can find us on Instagram. We're having a great time over there. That's at Rock and Roll Heaven LT. You can check us out on Facebook. We're actually very, very active over there. And that is helmed by pretty much me and my brother. You do Instagram, Will right. the Thrill. Mm-hmm. And then me and my brother kind of hold it down on Facebook. And that's at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Join us over there. I'm still not saying our website. and You can email us, rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And please make sure to check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. And also you can order your Tiesta tea with the code ROCKHEAVEN15. And if I said this stuff too fast, you can find it in the show notes. So from all of us here at Rock and Roll Heaven, all of you guys out there, just remember the light at the end of the tunnel might be something that's on fire. So you might want to check that. Do you smell something burning? Maybe, what are you doing? I thought that was something on your keyboard <laughs> so I was okay. like, I got get rid of that. But no, it's, it's clearly not that. It's, it's there for life. Yes. All right. It is eternal. All right. TJ, do you have anything you'd like to say to the audience? Bye, everybody. All right. Will the Thrill?
0: I helped. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. <laughs> okay,
3: great. So I'm going to close out this episode with Michael's very first solo hit, which is Got to Be There. You guys have a great day. Hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. We'll see you next week. I love you all. Good night.